tonight we're going to talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does it mean to be a follower of the anointed king of David's line? What does it mean to follow Jesus even when one's knowledge and understanding about who he is is less than perfect or less than complete? How can people who want to follow Jesus do so even today? These are the kinds of questions we're going to try to answer as we examine a few incidents in the gospel according to Mark which highlight the discipleship theme. And we're going to start over in Mark chapter 3 tonight. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus has performed uh, several notable miracles. He's entangled with the Pharisees in a series of controversy stories. And now that Jesus' public ministry in Galilee is well underway, people are starting to talk about who he is. And different folks have different ideas about Jesus' identity at this early stage in the gospel according to Mark. So let's read about some of those theories regarding Jesus in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse number 20. Jesus has just selected the 12 apostles and it says, and he came home, or your translation might say he came to the house. We noted last night that it was Peter's house in Capernaum that was sort of the hub, the headquarters of the Galilean ministry of Jesus. So again, I think this is Peter's house. He uh, came to the house or home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people, that is the people from Nazareth where Jesus was from, heard about this, they came out to take custody of him. For they were saying he's lost his senses or he's lost his mind. Okay, here's one group of people, those who are from Jesus' hometown. They have one theory about Jesus. He's kind of nuts. Something's not quite right in the head with this man. Verse 22, here's another group. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul or Beelzebub and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Let me note the difference here. Uh, you might have a version that says Beelzebub and there's a scribal manuscript error here uh, where some ancient manuscripts say Beelzebub and others say Beelzebul. The key in both of these words is that they're both derivations of the old Canaanite god Baal. Beelzebub was kind of a Jewish insult to Baal, which really literally means Lord of the Flies. That's really what the word means. And it was a way of mocking Baal. Beelzebul is a way of ascribing Baal an honorific. It basically means the Prince Baal or the Lord of Demons. So essentially, this group has come up, the scribes, and they have accused Jesus of working miracles by the power of a false god, by the power of some kind of idol. Okay, let's move on here in verse 23. And so he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. 
but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Now, the scribes come and they accuse Jesus of working miracles by the power of Baal. And Jesus interprets that as saying that they were accusing him of being in league with Satan. And Jesus here is representing a biblical view about the true power behind idols. Both Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, I think chapter 32, and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 teach that when pagans are worshiping idols, whether they realize it or not, they're actually worshiping demons. And that there is a power behind idolatry, but it's the power of the evil one. It's the work of Satan and his minions that prompts and instigates idol worship and all forms of paganism. So we've got two groups so far. Jesus' fellow Nazarenes who think he's lost his mind and the scribes who thinks he's in league with the forces of darkness. Now, Jesus, of course, gives this little parable about it would be absurd for one to think that a minion of Satan was toppling Satan's power. We noted last night that one of the manifestations of the kingdom of God was its ability to fight back the powers of darkness. The very first miracle Jesus ever performed back in Mark 1 was casting out an evil spirit. And this is showing that when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, the influence of Satan is diminished. It's reduced. Then Jesus went to Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law who had a fever unto death. Again, showing that all of the effects of sin, even disease, shrink back at the power of the kingdom of God. So Jesus says it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to think that Satan's going to come around and defeat Satan, to think that the minion of darkness is going to come around to beat back the forces of darkness. Now, he goes on in verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons and daughters of men, and whatever blasphemies they commit, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I'm not going to linger on the unpardonable sin as sometimes we discuss it here. That's really not germane to our discussion tonight. I'll just mention this. The accusation that they made of Jesus was that he was working miracles by the power of Satan. So it seems that the sin they had committed was attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil. They called the miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit as exercised through the miracles Jesus was performing the work of Satan. And that was blasphemy against what the Holy Spirit was doing in the ministry of Jesus. Okay, we now have our third group who are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers came. And while standing outside, that's outside the house, they sent word to him calling for him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So there's a third group, Jesus' 
own family is here and they're trying to have some sort of conversation with him. And now a fourth group, verse 33. Answering them, Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who were sitting around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, this is my brother and sister and mother. The first point I want to make about discipleship tonight is that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be in proximity to him. I want you to notice very carefully the language here. It says that Jesus' mother and brothers were outside the house. In fact, they never come inside. They're outside the house and they're beckoning Jesus out to where they are. But where are the disciples? They're not outside. They're inside the house. They're already seated with Jesus. Jesus is essentially implying if they want to be a follower of mine, they need to come on in. I'm not going out there. So you have throughout Mark this fascinating contrast between insiders and outsiders. And all the people the Jews would have expected to be insiders when Messiah arrived are outsiders. The religious leaders, the professional scribes of the law, Jesus' home, fellow hometown people, and even his own family. You would think these would be the people who would be ready for the arrival of Messiah. The king is here and he's from our town. We're going to love him. We're going to follow him. We're going to cherish him. And not a single one of them does. They should be insiders, but they're outside the house. And then the people the Jews would have assumed would have been the last to follow Messiah. The tax collectors, the harlots, the impoverished Fishermen, the uneducated people of Galilee, these were the ones who flocked to him. These were the ones who wanted to be in proximity to where Jesus was. Now, we're living thousands of years after Jesus was in his body and walked here on the earth. So how can we, without being able to sit in the room with him, be in proximity with Jesus? Well, he tells us. It's the last verse of the chapter. He says, looking around the table, here are my family, for whoever does the will of God, that's my brother and my sister and my mother. Proximity to Jesus means having an entire dedication to his teachings and his way of life. I mentioned last night that sometimes I think we get parables wrong. I've often heard it said that parables were designed to be something that was easy for people to understand that would illustrate a more complex idea. Something that was common that would explain something that was not quite as common. And I don't really think that's the idea. In fact, in Mark 4, which is, remember, 
There are no chapters or verses uh, when Mark was originally written, as with all the books of the Bible. So when we roll right into Mark 4, after Jesus makes this statement about whoever does the will of my Father will be the one who is my family, uh, we get right into a sermon of parables. And look at what it says in verses 10 through 12. As soon as Jesus was alone, so he's just given his first parable there, uh, which is the parable of the sower casting seed. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12 disciples, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but for those who are outside, everything comes in parables. Verse 12 says, so that while seeing, they may not see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and it would be forgiven them. Jesus says, these truths that I'm delivering in parables are for those who are inside the house already. For those who have already made the decision, I want to be where Jesus is. For those who have already committed themselves to becoming his followers, his disciples, those who learn from him. Those who are outside, the parables will only confuse them. They'll be perplexed by all these things that I teach. And that was good. Because another theme in Mark is that Jesus is concerned that the time will come too quickly for him to go to the cross. And so at times he has to hide and dodge and even obfuscate those who were opposed to him, those who were his enemies. And the parables would have confused them. They would have thought, what's this guy even talking about? Because they were not among those who wanted to live in proximity to Jesus. And so being close to Jesus is about learning his ways and living them out each and every day. All right, now let's go to Mark chapter 5. Last night we talked about that famous scene where Jesus calmed the waves and the winds on Lake Galilee. Well, the whole reason they were on the lake is because it wasn't safe for Jesus to be in Galilee anymore. And so uh, the crowds were so massive, they were just going to trample Jesus to death. So they got in the boat to cross over to the eastern side of the lake, which is a region called the Decapolis. Decapolis just means ten cities. And this was a heavily Gentile region. And when Jesus gets over onto the east side of the lake, he has this incredible encounter with a demon-possessed man. And for time's sake, we're not going to read the whole account. But you remember this particular demon-possessed man was so filled, so consumed by so many evil spirits that it even manifests in some kind of superhuman strength. And the people of that region were terrified of this man. They had to bind him with chains and stick him in the tombs because uh, it was too fearful for him to be around anyone. They tried to stay as far away as possible. And when Jesus came and found this man, you remember that it cried out, My name is Legion, for we are many. And Jesus sent those evil spirits into the pigs. And you wonder, well, why were there pigs? I thought that's not kosher. Well, these are Gentiles. Of course they're going to have pigs. And the pigs go screaming off into the lake, into the abyss. And if you want to know why that happened, we can talk about that another time. But here's the key. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. 
The herdsmen, that's those who were the keepers of the pigs, ran away and reported it in the city and in the countryside. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who previously had the legion, and they became frightened. There's sort of an interesting play here. We talked last night about how when Jesus and the disciples were on the boat and he calmed the storm, that they were afraid, not of the storm, but of Jesus. And they said, who is this man that even the winds and the sea obeys him? Because according to Psalm, according to Psalm 107, only Yahweh, only God, has power over the storm and can calm the sea. And they didn't know what to make of Jesus. They were terrified. Here, we've got a bunch of Gentiles who knew that this man had been terrorizing their community for some time and knew of his great power and seeing him now clothed and in his right mind and everything seeming to be well, they were terrified. So that's what kind of binds these two stories together. It's fear of the power of Jesus because they are not able to understand it. Okay, let's read on, verse 16. Those who had seen it described it to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the pigs. And they began to beg him to leave their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was begging him that he might accompany him. And Jesus didn't let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. This is the first time in all of Mark Jesus ever told someone to go tell others what he had done. There are many other times when Jesus tells people after healing them, you don't say a word about this to anybody. And if you're curious why Jesus hushed people like that, you've got to come back tomorrow morning. Now, what is it that this man was to go and tell others about? He was to go and tell them about his transformed life. And that's the second element of discipleship in Mark. Everyone knew what this man was before he encountered Jesus. And seeing the transformation in him was startling, amazing, and would instantly draw people to the Jesus who could bring about this transformation. How is it that this could happen to a man like that. He says, you go tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and about the mercy he has shown to you. That transformation was his testimonial. It was his witness to everyone who knew him before that this was not the same man he used to be. Now, I just want to make a little side comment before we go to number three. 
Sometimes this kind of transformation is not instantaneous like it was with the demon-possessed man. Of course, there was an incredible miracle performed here. And so his transformation was quick, it was rapid, and it was startling. For the rest of us, sometimes this kind of transformation into the image of Christ takes a long time. And that's okay. It's okay if we are slowly but surely conforming ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit through the message that we read and learn about in the Word of God, if we are slowly but surely changing and molding our lives after the image of Jesus Christ. But you know what is essential to discipleship? What is essential to discipleship is that you are more like Jesus now than you were before. That is essential. And if you want to know whether a person is a genuine disciple or not, you should be able to examine the person they are today and compare it to the person they were not that long ago and say, do I see a change in this person? And if this person is the same exact person he or she was 10 years ago, I'm sorry, that's not a disciple. It's not. You might be a good church member. You might be an asset to your congregation in one way or another, but you're not a disciple of Jesus. Disciples manifest transformation in their lives as they conform to the image of Christ. Okay, now, number three. And of the four incidents we're going to talk about tonight, this one may be uh, my favorite. Actually, it's two incidents. Mark does this thing, you know, I've heard several of you say to me throughout the week that you really like Mark because it's action-packed, and that's true. And one of the ways Mark makes his gospel kind of action-packed is he uses something called the sandwich technique. Now, if you're hungry, I don't want you to start thinking about BLTs. That's not the kind of sandwich I'm talking about. Mark will take two incidents in the life of Jesus that if you read about them in Matthew or Luke don't even necessarily happen at the same time and he will smash them together because Mark identifies there's some theme that connects these two events. There's some similarity between them and so Mark will just take them and wham them together kind of like a sandwich and it makes it seem like they're happening at the same time although they might not actually be. Now this one probably was something that happened at the same time. But let's read about it. We're still in Mark 5. We're going to start reading in verse 21. I hope you have your Bible. We're going to read quite a few verses here. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, guess where we've gone? Back to Galilee. Back to Galilee. A large crowd gathered around him, and he stayed by the seashore. I've wondered, did they just wait there for him to come back? They saw him go off into the storm and uh, was just waiting around for Jesus to return. Maybe, verse 22. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came and upon seeing him fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Okay, Jesus gets back. This synagogue official comes to him. 
makes a request for a healing, something Jesus has already done, cured people with sicknesses, brought them back to the brink of death, no problem here. Jesus moves forward to take care of this uh, miracle. But now we read verse 25. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but instead had become worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his garment or cloak. For she had been saying to herself, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power from him had gone out, turned around and to the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, Don't you see this crowd? Have you looked around? The crowd's pressing in on you. And you say, Who touched me? Who can know of the answer to that question? Verse 32. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be cured of your disease. The third point we're going to include in discipleship is exemplified incredibly well by this woman. And that is a radical trust in Jesus. I want to highlight the fact that Jesus, uh, excuse me, the woman, had no real idea as to whether or not this would work. Jesus had never performed a miracle like that before, where with just waving his shawl or his tunic, on someone, they were healed. She had no way of knowing whether or not this would even work. But she simply resigned herself to trust in Jesus and to try. Now, in the book of Leviticus, chapters 11 through 15, Moses outlines a bunch of different things that would make an Israelite unclean. And this was a kind of ritual uncleanness. All of the things that you read about in those chapters are basically, I think, designed to remind the Israelites of their condition no longer being in the Garden of Eden. We're living in a fallen world where there's disease and there's death. We're reminded of it all the time. And these various things that would make someone unclean were those kinds of reminders. So if you encountered someone who had skin disease, that person would be unclean. Or if you touched a dead body, that person would become unclean. And there were all kinds of ceremonies that God prescribed to bring someone from a state of ritual uncleanness to a state of cleanliness that would then allow that person to go to the tabernacle to be in the presence of God. Death and decay are not welcome in God's presence. And so Israelites had to be cleansed of these infirmities before they could draw near to where God was. 
if someone was in an unclean condition and that person touched someone else who was clean, the impurity passed from the unclean person to the clean person. And now the clean person is defiled. Having a hemorrhage of blood like this woman had would have kept her in a perpetually unclean condition. And I say that to highlight what an incredible risk it would have been for her to try to touch anyone. She knew that by touching Jesus, she was risking making this miracle worker, this rabbi, this prophet, or whatever she thought about Jesus, unclean. She just trusted in God. And she pressed forward not knowing what would actually transpire. Now there's an amazing thing that happens in Mark. All the unclean people that Jesus encounters, like lepers, like this woman, like dead people, instead of uncleanness passing from them to Jesus, healing and blessing flow from Jesus to the unclean person. Jesus says, I felt power come out from me. The saving work of Christ was flowing from him to her simply because she had a kind of radical trust in Jesus. Now let's read on and finish the sandwich to see what happened with the synagogue leader. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, people came down from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher further? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And after entering, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all outside, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and he entered the room where the child was in bed. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astonished. And he gave them strict orders that no one was to know about this. And he told them to have something given to her to eat. Remember, this is a dead body. And that, I think, is one of the links between these two stories. Both the woman with the issue of blood and the dead girl would have been ritually unclean. But more than that, both of these stories are linked together with a sense of radical trust. What did the man say to the synagogue official after they learned she had died? Don't be afraid. Just 
believe. Just believe. I want to just quickly give a very brief definition of biblical faith. Biblical faith includes three essential elements. The first is knowledge. You, of course, need to know something uh, about God before you can believe in Him. You need to know something about Jesus before you can believe in Him. But the second key element to biblical faith is trust. And that is the part of faith that's being emphasized in this story. Don't be afraid. Trust in me. Trust in my power. There's a third element of biblical faith. We'll add it on here on the board in just a minute. Okay, so we've talked about proximity to Jesus, transformed life, radical trust, and now we're going to go to our last story in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Now we're skipping a good chunk of Mark here. A lot of the section that we're skipping here involves Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles like with the Syrophoenician woman or Jesus multiplying loaves and a few fish to feed thousands and thousands of people. And we come here to Mark chapter 9. Now last night we sort of just dipped our toe into Mark chapter 9. The end of Mark 8 was Peter's confession, Jesus' chastisement of Peter, his lesson about the nature of suffering and the essentiality of suffering in order to live a life that is dedicated to the glory of God, then Peter, James, and John, the same trio who saw the girl raised from the dead, climb up on the mountain with Jesus. He transforms before them. And now as they descend off the mountain, they encounter something that needs to be taken care of right away. This is Mark 9. We're picking up in verse 14. Verse 14. And when they came back to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, why are you disputing with them? And one person from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son because he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes stiff. And I told your disciples so that they would cast it out, but they could not do it. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, the spirit immediately threw him into convulsions. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, if all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. 
When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing them into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became much like a corpse. And most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began asking him privately, Why is it that we could not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything except prayer. Now this is a remarkable, a remarkable event. Jesus, after just manifesting his divine glory to Peter, James, and John, comes down the mountain to find his own disciples, the ones that he had given earlier in Mark, the power to cast out unclean spirits struggling to do what Jesus had enabled them to do. Why they couldn't do it? Difficult to know for certain. But they were unable. And what Jesus finds is a desperate father. A father who has watched his son suffer horribly for years. A father who's maybe at his very wit's end may not be able to hang on any longer. He's so lacking in confidence that anything can help his boy that he even says to Jesus, if you can do anything, that would be great. And Jesus says, oh, it's not a matter of if. If you believe, it will happen. Just as a side note, sometimes Jesus performs miracles and there's no evidence of faith in the one being healed. Faith in the victim is not always a prerequisite for healing. But here, there's an important reason why Jesus emphasizes that. He says, if you believe, it will happen. And that man so pitifully replies, I believe. Help my unbelief. This, I think, powerfully portrays the fourth point about discipleship I want to share with you tonight. And that is having a desire to grow. Here was a man who was desperately trying to believe that Jesus could do this. A man who was desperately trying to trust that something good could finally happen for his boy. A man who was desperately trying to have confidence in Jesus' abilities. But he was struggling. He was struggling terribly. And so this man, like so many of us, wanted to believe. But it was hard for him to do it. But you know what? 
his meager faith in Jesus was enough. Because Jesus, in response to that declaration from the Father, healed this boy. Jesus saw in this man an awareness of the imperfection in his own faith, but a desire to grow. A desire to grow. I think the third component of biblical faith is loyalty to Jesus. I want to emphasize that I'm not putting the word obedience, and that's deliberate. Obedience is not the means of our justification. Works is not the way a person becomes right with God. Justification comes only by faith. The Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans and Galatians. And faith is about knowing Jesus, trusting in Him, and being loyal to Him. If our justification before God was dependent on our obedience, not a single person who has ever lived would be right with God. No one. Do you have the ability to know every command of God and do it perfectly? I sure don't. There are many parts of the Bible that I have no idea what they mean. And I know that there are things that God has commanded that I struggle to do. And some things that he's forbidden that I have a hard time not doing. If my rightness before God was dependent on my ability to obey every command in Scripture, I would have no hope of salvation and neither would you. But God has never, ever demanded faultlessness He's only expected faithfulness. And faithfulness is about having a radical trust in Jesus that says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. One of the worst enemies of the Christian is the belief that we have arrived to a state where we no longer need to grow. One of the worst things that could ever happen to a disciple of Jesus is the belief that I have attained a certain level of Christianity that no longer needs improvement. It's also one of the worst things that can happen to a congregation of Christians. The belief that our congregation has arrived that we have perfectly replicated the New Testament pattern, that we are perfectly fulfilling the commandments of God, and that now we can just carry on forward as we've always been. That is the death sentence to every congregation in the world. I believe, and I know you do too, but we still need Jesus to help our unbelief. You know what happens to us 
if we slide into a system of justification that's based on works, if we slide into a system where we think we'll be right or, right, right or wrong with God based on how well we perform the commandments that He's given us, you know what happens to us? We know deep down inside we can't do it all. Nobody can. Nobody can do it all. And so instead, what we do is we come up with a tier list. We say, okay, there are some top tier commands we have to do perfectly or we're not going to make it. And maybe we'll put things like uh, how you become a Christian or uh, how you worship God. And that's the A tier. Those you have to have. Then we have maybe a B tier. Things pertaining to uh, Christian living, you know, not being a liar, not being a gossip, doing kind, courteous, loving things for others. That's kind of, you know, really important to have those, really good to have them, but not essential. You can get away with missing most of those and still be okay with God. And then we might even have a C tier below that, you know, things like helping the poor or having a positive impact on our communities. And those are things we say, well, nice to have, but not that important. That's terrible. What a terrible way of thinking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, we all need to acknowledge we can't do it all, and that's okay. God acknowledges it too. He knows our ignorance. He knows our weakness. All He asks is that we commit ourselves to knowing Him, trusting Him, and being loyal to Him, and growing each and every day so that we are more like Him tomorrow than we were in the past. That's what God wants from us. And that's what this desperate father had. I believe. Help my unbelief. I think that's a line that each and every one of us should incorporate into our regular prayer life. I believe. But it's not always easy. I believe. But I make a lot of mistakes. I believe. But I'm not the man I know I should be. I believe but I have a long way to go. But I'm willing to try. And I want to grow. Discipleship includes proximity to Jesus, a transformed life that is manifest to those around you, a radical trust in Jesus, and a willingness to push ourselves to grow in the grace and knowledge of our blessed Lord, Jesus, the anointed King of David's line.